Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae. I'm here today with Anya Prince. To be, we're going to be talking about genetic discrimination and the law. Anya is an associate professor at the University of Iowa College of Law, where she explores the ethical, legal, and social implications of genomic testing. In particular, Anya has focused on the twin threats of genetic discrimination and loss of privacy as we transition into an era where algorithms and computing power combine to turn us into both the sources and the subjects of big data. In particular, Anya has, with vigilance, kept her eye on the potential for insurance companies to make use of the growing availability of genetic information. So something I've never asked you, Anya, though we've known each other for a few years, how'd you get into that? Like, it feels like a kind of an obscure, interesting thing for an aspiring law professor to aim at. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me to the program. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Um, so I, I broadly got into this topic actually because of a genetic counselor. I, um, I, in, I had a joint degree in law school and did a public policy master's and I had to take an ethics class and I could take a regular old, you know, John Locke <laughs> manual account ethics class, or I could take this thing called genetics in society. And I thought, well, that sounds cool. I'll take that. Um, and just, um, it was taught by a genetic counselor in DC and I fell in love with it. Uh, and then discrimination um, was always sort of of interest to me in law school as well, um, different rights. And so it really came together. Um, and with a focus on health law, insurance is just such a, a big part. I actually thought employment discrimination might be more what I would do when I first started out with this, but insurance has been so much more of a concern for people. And I think actually been realized a little bit more than employment discrimination. Uh, so that's where the focus kind of led me more and more towards insurance. Oh, interesting. And of course, I love that answer. A genetic counselor, which is fantastic. Um, I want to talk about what you just hinted at, uh, that it has been a, a more, what was the word you used? Actualized or realized. Maybe. Actualized. Yeah, like that. Um, but for the sake of setting the stage a bit, let's do a quick review of the anti-discrimination protections that we actually have at this point, mostly under GINA and a little bit under the ACA. Yeah. Um, so the main um, law in this area is the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, or GINA, and this was passed in 2008, and it prohibits um, covered employers and health insurers from discriminating on the basis of genetic information. And I say covered because there's some gaps um, in that, like for employment, it doesn't cover employers who have fewer than 15 employees. Um, and there's some, some types of health insurance that aren't covered, um, but the vast majority of health insurance and, and really a lot of employers are covered um, by GINA or either state, either that, the federal law or state law equivalents. Um, but that's that's it. It just covers those two topics. And so I'm sure as we'll talk about, there's so many other entities that you might be worried about who could potentially want to use genetic information um, that that Gina just doesn't address at all. Um, and then you, you mentioned the Affordable Care Act. So I'll just briefly mention that as well. Gina was really groundbreaking 
because it was passed in 08 before the Affordable Care Act or before Obamacare, as it's always known, was passed. And so so um, it was the first really big law that stopped ins- health insurers from taking into account some type of pre-existing condition, including family medical history. And then two years later, the Affordable Care Act really rounded that out by saying, no, health insurers can't take into account any pre-existing condition, including manifested conditions, which Gina doesn't cover. So between the two of them, you really get really comprehensive protection in the health insurance space. I'm just going to flesh this out a little bit more with you, because this is is no spoiler. This is something that Anya and I have talked about a lot before and actually written about together, because what Gina doesn't cover is when you have the condition, say manifest condition, rather than the susceptibility or the genetic tendency or, you know, whether whether something is theoretically uh, predicted by your genotype. But once you have the condition, that's no longer covered under GINA. And right. as we have discussed, that that sounds like a little loophole, and it turns out to be a very big loophole because almost all genetic conditions have some early manifestation. So if you have the genes for Lynch syndrome, are you sick when you have your first polyp or you know when you have cancer? Um, and we don't really know the answer to that, right? Yeah, it hasn't really been tested too much in, in court. Um, so the definition of, of manifested, that's the language that's used in the law, Gina, hasn't really been tested. And, and oftentimes it's the fact that we know a predisposition that causes us to go out and look for symptoms. And then lo and behold, you find that super early, like you were mentioning a polyp or um, in hemochromatosis, an iron level that that you wouldn't even necessarily have gone and looked for. And so so it really is so much linked to the genetic predisposition. And yet the law just says, no, if it's if it's any sort of symptomatic part, then we're not we're not protecting that. Right. I think this is actually very interesting because, I mean, we treat, for instance, HBLC, we treat having a BRCA mutation as a condition, you know, you have hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome, and it has to have uh, some binding meaning as a condition because we send people for fairly expensive surveillance and so on based on it. So that sort of like make it a manifest condition, right? Yeah. And again, it's going to depend on how that law interprets, right? Is it, um, is it, uh, sort of symptoms, um, and and this is just an open question. Uh, I wrote a paper a while back of, about this, right when Gina was first passed. So if anybody's interested in digging in more, there's lots of ways it could potentially be interpreted. Whether it's when somebody should have realized that they have a condition, or when when it's sort of diagnosable, like cancer as opposed to a polyp. Um, but we haven't, we don't have a you know definitive court ruling that helps us really understand that. And they don't have it because we have the Affordable Care Act. Yes. <laughs> which, yeah. which I got to say, which felt more under threat, you know, some years ago. Well, it was more under threat some years ago because we had someone, former person in the White House who was sort of determined to tear down everything that had been done in the four years before him, including Obamacare. But having failed at that, um, it no longer seems like it's sort of got a bullseye on it. And I, I feel like the Republicans have sort of accepted that people like 
Obamacare too much to get rid of it wholesale. But maybe I'm wrong. So we need to be vigilant. Yeah. And the pre-existing conditions part is one of the most popular parts of the Affordable Care Act. So that's going to be the hardest to to get away. Um, yeah, and yep. it was always one of the most popular. You always aiming directly at it and be like, that's what we're going to get rid of, the one you really like. You know, uh, it didn't make a lot of sense except in terms of vindictiveness, but uh, but and it I, didn't I, like threat. I will say, um, you know, we're talking mostly about health insurance here, but this manifested part also comes into play in the context of employment. And there we have the Americans with Disabilities Act. That's the that's the sort of bookend to GINA. So again, GINA doesn't cover manifested symptoms, but the affordable, um, or sorry, the too many acronyms that are ADA, ACA, but the Americans with Disabilities Act prevents employers from taking into account and, and discriminate against somebody with a, with a disability. What's interesting in that setting is the gap between the two. So you could have a space where it's not protected by GINA because it's some symptomatic thing, but it doesn't yet rise to a level of a disability um, because the standard for disability is is higher in the American with Disabilities Act than it is in the in the ACA. So a little bit more wiggle room there um, or a gap in the law or fuzziness in the law. And have you seen that be a problem or that not not so far? Yeah, not really so far. So as I hinted at earlier, there have been very, very few cases brought in the employment setting. Um, And, you know, it's hard to know why. Is that because discrimination isn't occurring at all? Is it because people don't know that they're being discriminated against? Is it because um, it's hard to bring cases and win cases? Um, But we're definitely not seeing, you know, a a whole swath of, of cases that are brought under GINA. I want to I want to ask you a couple of questions about that, because in in many ways, I feel like the lawyers, excuse me for putting you in a collective group, but the, 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 the experts, the legal experts are saying we're not seeing a lot of genetic discrimination cases, not in employment, not really anywhere. Are we seeing a lot of genetic discrimination cases? So it's not happening. And I also feel that for years I've had this undercurrent that I hear back from counselors where people come in with stories and maybe it is happening but isn't getting into the courts or when it gets to the courts um, they're signing agreements to not talk about it. Um, Do you have a sense on that? This is what you do. Do you feel like it's more common than maybe we know or that that we're correct in assuming that that our anxieties about genetic discrimination are so far not been realized? Um, I think it's probably a little bit of both. Um, in the sense that there are very real concerns and people are worried about their employers treating them, you know, in ways that, you know, are discriminatory. Um, I think a couple of things that happen is, unfortunately, sometimes what people think are, is genetic discrimination is a different type of discrimination, which doesn't make it less bad. <laughs> it just means that it's not discrimination under Gina, right? If, if it's actually... <laughs> um, But uh, so sometimes there's that complication. The other thing that I would say is one part of GINA that is not talked about as much is that um, I really conceptualize GINA as having two main um, protections. One is the anti-discrimination protection and one is the privacy protection. So GINA actually prohibits 
employers from, and the language of the law is requesting, requiring, um, or collecting genetic information. And so that is super powerful um, and might be one of the reasons we don't see as much discrimination, because if you can't get the information, you can't discriminate based on it. So for, for patients who are worried, you know, they don't have to disclose to their employer their genetic information. They don't have to, um, they can't be asked by their employer about their genetic information. There's some, I'll, you know, be the lawyer and there's a the little asterisk, that there's some exceptions to that, but those are pretty confined. And so I think that's a really powerful part of, um, of Gina that is both in the health insurance space, but because of the ACA is less powerful there, but in the employment space, really powerful. I know the exception is wellness programs. Yes. I like to talk about wellness programs because I feel that they're kind of evil having come from the idea. They feel very evil to me and they have this like sweet name, you know, it's like Ghostbusters and you're being threatened by the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. I'm like, how can you be against <laughs> wellness programs? But they are kind of a sneaky way of getting uh, genetic information that you're not supposed to be able to ask for. Yeah. So, um, so just to flesh that out a little bit. So one of the exceptions is um, that employers who offer a voluntary wellness program can ask for genetic information. And this includes genetic test results. And it also includes family history, because it's really important to remember that Gina defines genetic information to include family history. And so when you fill out those um, uh, medical forms as part of your employer wellness program, they might ask about family history. But um, that family history section or anything about genetic testing uh, can't have any, um, at this point in time, can't have any uh, monetary incentive or penalty attached. So if I get a big um, form from my employer as part of the wellness program that says, answer some questions about your diet and your sleeping and your exercise and your, um, you know, current uh, symptoms or, or conditions and your family history, I could just not fill out the family history part and they would still have to give me the you know, gym membership or the whatever that they that they offer, um, even if I don't fill that out. Yeah, but a lot of people don't realize that. So, so in order to tinkering around the edges, let's 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 go to the the big loopholes, the things that Gina really doesn't cover, yeah. uh, which is uh, life insurance and long term care, principally, right? Yeah, those are the ones that are often talked about. I also like to say, like. It doesn't cover anything, right? It doesn't cover mortgage companies or auto property, um, auto insurance, property insurance. And I say that because I speak a lot at insurance um, uh, conferences. And I always, if I'm talking about life and long-term care um, insurance and my research in that area, inevitably I get three or four people coming up to me after talks and say, what do you think about property insurance? So the insurers are thinking about it. Um, not that there's much evidence that it's being used yet, but I, I think it's in the back of, of mine. So not to, you know, scare everybody away, but, but <laughs> there's a lot of things. About, what about life and long-term care? Um, so that's obviously an anxiety that's out there. We'll, and theoretically, there's no legal obstacle to them using this information or asking about this information, right? At the federal level, there is no um, legal obstacle, right? So Gina only covers health insurance. And so a life insurer could absolutely ask about family history, could ask about genetic test results. And, and in many states, depending on the state law, ask you to take a genetic test. Um, they're often not doing that, at least not at the application stage, um, but they 
they can legally um, unless state law prohibits it. So I feel like there have been a couple of articles over the last few years now and then that insurance companies are taking a look at using this sort of information or like opening up. But clearly they're, I would assume, concerned about blowback because maybe if they started using it, they would just be like, oh, we're going to extend all of these regulations to also cover life insurance. So do you think we should expect to see uh, that use of, I mean, I figured up till now, there just hasn't been enough genetic testing to make it valuable enough for them to use it. Like it, 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 it'd have to be done at scale, right? Yeah. So if if we could, you know, rule out a few, a handful of people here and there. Yeah. So um, I have a couple of answers to that. So one is um, insurers are absolutely using family history all the time. So to the extent that you're conceptualizing that as genetic information, right, that's that is their bread and butter in terms of um, underwriting uh, for medical risks. Um, And if you have a heightened family history, maybe they start to dig in and get some information about genetic tests. Um, And this is where sometimes people volunteer that though they have a family history of, say, Lynch syndrome, they tested negative. So it's actually can be used to to lower your risk from the perspective of the insurers. So that's one way to think about it and how it's currently used. Generally, though, um, I think one of the reasons why this hasn't been such a big splash is if you think about life insurance, there's actually not very many genetic conditions that are that helpful to them at the moment, if we're thinking about monogenic conditions. So you need an adult onset condition because we're not getting life insurance on 15-year-olds, really. Um, You need something that can't be, um, that isn't already manifest and can't be identified from other symptoms. So many um, cardiovascular type things, you know, you might be able to find that and that you can't really identify from family history alone. And then you need something that isn't preventable. If it's preventable, then it actually doesn't predict your mortality, right? If we take BRCA, there's a lot of evidence that if somebody tests positive for BRCA and takes all the preventive measures, that they have robust life expectancy. And so life insurers actually would be (laughs) sort of stupid to take that into account because then they're they're passing up on somebody who's actually a good good risk for them to take on. that's sort of like in insurance speak of taking on that risk, but you know, that's a good customer for them. Um, and so when you put that all together, there's actually not that many conditions that are super helpful. It's like the Huntington's diseases of the world. Let's, let's boil it all down to one word. Let's boil it all down to Alzheimer's. Yeah. And, and that's a big one for like long-term care. Yes. Um, too. Yeah. So We've been hearing about this for, I I remember uh, Robert Greene up in Boston giving a talk, it must be 10 years ago, where he talked about genetic testing for Alzheimer's. And he said he was practically attacked by a horde of uh, long-term care insurance company representatives afterwards, sort of screaming at him as though he was personally responsible, like they were going to lynch him, which is a funny choice of words, about the syndrome. The actual lynching, um, because in a world where there's an asymmetry of knowledge, 
about who will get Alzheimer's. And a person is in a position to know if they're at greater risk or lesser risk, but the company is not allowed to know. They were basically saying in that Alzheimer's is such a big piece of the long-term care payout that they could offer it. So where has that gone in the last decade? Like, is that a great anxiety or people, what, what are they doing? Yeah, so this is, um, so, so putting our two questions together, um, there, there isn't that many, you know, there aren't that many genetic conditions that are super helpful to life insurers right now. And yet they are adamantly opposed to any sort of regulation that would prevent them from using the insurance or the genetic conditions that they don't find helpful at the moment. And that is because of what you say. Both they're worried about future developments that we all of a sudden get super better at, at um, identifying risk. Um, and um, they're worried about how what they call adverse selection. So if I know that I have a predisposition to Alzheimer's. I'm going to go out and get insurance. Um, and in practice, so there are some studies that show some limited studies that show that um, that individuals who've tested positive or for like an APOE gene associated with Alzheimer's um, or Huntington's disease um, are interested or have have gotten higher insurance policies. Um, but there's 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 reasons to think that those are limited. And also if you think about the broad scope of genetic conditions out there, like I'm not necessarily gonna get a, some, you know, a, a genetic test back that's a 30% increased risk of cardiovascular disease and think, you know what I need to do? I need to go out and get a $2 million life insurance policy. So I, there is um, some level of this that I think is um, <laughs> to, go to a conversation uh, Laura and I were having prior to this, a little bit of, of chicken little. The, the insurers are like, the sky is falling, we're gonna have all this adverse selection. Um, and in in practice, I think there are some reasons why that is hard to have play out. Um, and just to give an example, right, some of it is people are bad at contextualizing their risk and they might not actually get the, the um, same amount of sort of insurance. Um, insurance is expensive and not everybody can afford a big life insurance policy. And so there's going to be some people who, yes, might go and get insurance because they didn't have it, but they're not going to get way more than they already could have. And then a lot of people who test positive are already going to have symptoms. And frankly, it's those symptoms that are going to be make it harder to get the insurance than the genetic information itself. So I think that adverse selection is not as big of a concern as is talked about um, in the insurance realm, but um, but th they would they would vociferously argue <laughs> against that. <laughs> they would disagree. Well, they would disagree. There are, I mean, I'm usually uh, not fully against. I, I'm usually skeptical of our predictive abilities. Uh, in, as a general pose in life, I'm skeptical of our predictive abilities. I, I feel like every time we anticipate that we're going to be able to predict something, we get slapped in the face, right? Like, oh, here's all the things you didn't know about that, um, which I think is good. I think it's it's better. You know, I'm, I'm sort of the Pandora's box person. I'm like, don't let it out. You know, it's better if we don't know, um, even though, yeah, I understand that sometimes it could be helpful medically. Um, but uh, for Alzheimer's, they are developing not just genetic testing, but biomarker testing 
I do think we are on the cusp of being able to say, not at birth, but 20 years before symptoms manifest, this person is, is headed in that direction. And um, it'll be interesting to see, right? Because there's personal costs to getting that information. I mean, I don't want it. I wouldn't want it if it's me. I'm sort of at that age, you know? Um, and so unclear to me whether the theoretical consumers of long-term care insurance will even want this information if they can have it. But if they can, then I think it's it's probably going to be a real question. Yeah, and that's when um, we've been, you know, talking mostly about the life insurance space. Um, the long-term care insurance space is so fascinating, um, in part because the cost is actually a little more worrying in the sense that, especially with something like Alzheimer's, you can live for a very long time and need really expensive care during that time. Um, and so it's, it's way more of a concern for a long-term care insurance market. And the long-term care insurance market in the U.S. is unraveling. And it's not because of genetic tests. It's because of previous difficulties in pricing this. And so there used to be hundreds of long-term care insurance um, companies out there. And there's like a handful now or 20 in the 20s or something. I forget the number off the top of my head. Um, so the market is already unstable. Uh, and so adding something like um, Alzheimer's, even if there's a little bit of adverse selection, is going to be much more destabilizing in that market and much more of a concern as opposed to a life insurance market that's really robust and you add a little bit of adverse selection, that that risk that people would um, sort of oversubscribe to insurance and the insurance companies couldn't know this, they can absorb more of that because life insurance is just a more robust policy. So really different considerations for long-term care and life insurance. And for both of these things, uh, we could consider extension of GINA that would cover it, but there doesn't seem to be much appetite for uh, on our federal government for taking any kind of, of action uh, of any sort right at the moment. <laughs> Basically, Basically, we're, we're, we're holding a long-term conversation as to whether or not we're going to repair our bridges, right? So, um, but at state level, there are some interesting new developments. And I know that Florida passed, a, I think it was the first in the country law recently, um, restricting uh, insure, all insurance companies, including disability, long-term care, and um, life insurance from using genetic information. So I have two questions for you. It's like, is this a significant new step? And how is it Florida that's leading the way? Those are my two questions. Yeah. So um, so Florida, the reason why Florida's bill is sort of first of its kind is because it's the first to stop all three of those insurances together from using uh, any genetic information. So no state before had stopped life insurers from using genetic information. There were already states that... Um, that you that uh, stopped disability insurers or and or long-term care insurers from using genetic information. So there has been some movement in this area before. It's not you know 25 states, maybe five states that have these really robust protections. Um, but Florida is the biggest state and um, the biggest state to do this and the first in life insurance. And I think an interesting one because given the population, long-term care insurance is. Um, of interest just because it's an aging population there. So also interesting to see those. Um, how was Florida uh, first? You know, one of it is um, 
the representative who brought this bill, um, the story is that he happens, this was Representative Sprouls, um, and he happened to be watching a like advertisement on TV for a direct-to-consumer genetic test and just thought offhand, like, I wonder what would happen to the results and insurance, and then started researching it, found out that there was no protection, and just became a passionate um, advocate for this. And and it, it made it through. What was remarkable about Florida is not that the bill was introduced. It's that it actually made it through committees without the insurance lobby being able to change it um, in a way that was either to just stop it from passing or to change it in a way that watered it down. Because there is a lot of state bills that are that come up every year. I would say four or five states in the country every year have a bill introduced in their in their state legislature um, advocating or that would that would stop life and long term care and disability insurers from using genetics. So this year, um, I think Tennessee has one. Vermont has one right in 2022 alone. Um, the thing is that they don't the insurance lobby comes in and says, here's what would happen. And there's not necessarily sort of the lobby that's pushing back and saying, here's why this is so important. For whatever reason, um, the insurance lobby was very active in Florida, but it just didn't gain the traction that it has in other states. And and so then we have this bill. That's really interesting. So do you expect there to be more? Do you think that it's a beachhead? Then now we'll see more. I mean, I'm I'm keeping an eye out this year on the on the bills because I am curious whether people will hear of it passing in Florida and have sort of a reinvigorated um, effort, but um, but it's it's been a steady drumbeat of efforts. It's just that Florida's is the first one to so to how actually do make it through. You have some states that have these regulations and some states that don't have these regulations because they're offering these companies are offering the products across. They're not state based, right? So is it where you live when you sign up for the for the policy, and then it doesn't matter when you go somewhere else? Like what? How, how does how does it work when it's a patchwork? Um, it is really difficult and really confusing. Um, so uh, really difficult and really confusing is what we specialize in here in the United States yeah. of America. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's 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 going to depend. Right. Different state laws um, have different rules over when you can apply for insurance. What's interesting about Florida um, is I reached out to the state insurance commissioner in Florida because and to try to figure out, well, who could actually apply to insurance? And um, the answer was, you just have to be in Florida to apply for insurance. So theoretically, anybody could fly to Florida, take out an insurance policy. I, this is my, you know, <laughs> my understanding from based on what the insurance commissioner had said, um, and and get get insurance. Um, and so that was also, I think it was called. Um, you know, sort of insurance tourism, like medical tourism <laughs> um, that comes out there, which um, we'll see if, if that starts to happen. But um, it, it can get uh, complicated. <laughs> so so Florida, a state that for years has specialized in being a place you go to die, can now be a place to go to make your plans to die. So it's sort of like <laughs> on brand, right, for them. It's what every family vacation, you know, is like, kids, we get to go to Disneyland and go to the insurance broker. (laughs) (laughs) 
So you mentioned that the the legislator who brought this up had been looking at direct to consumer testing and had these thoughts about it. So I have some thoughts about questions about direct to consumer in terms of direct to consumer testing in terms of data privacy and so on and and how they're used, which is basically right now the way the company can use your genetic data is based, as I understand it, on their terms of service, right? They mm-hmm. say, this is how we're going to do it. This is what we promise you. So uh, this came up in a conversation I was having recently, and I thought I would ask you, what happens if the company goes out of business, changes hands, gets sold? Are they obliged? Is the is the terms of service binding on them? Because I feel like some of these companies have just changed their terms of service somewhat abruptly. Yeah, so terms of service definitely can change. Um, and it doesn't need to be that, you know, the company goes out of business. They can just change the terms of service. So, um, you know, the, the Federal Trade Commission is the federal agency in charge of sort of reviewing this because they can't have deceptive trade practices. And so that would this that's sometimes there are privacy violations that are brought um you know, under federal law, because the uh, user agreement says one thing, and then their actual data practices are different. Um, but that's that's not what you're talking about here, right? This is we're doing exactly what we told you we were going to do, or we're doing exactly what we now say that we're going to do. Um, and so, at that point, then a lot of it is reputation, right? We don't want to all of a sudden um, really vastly change our practices uh, because. Um, because of the reputational damage. And we can see that a little bit with um, after um, the Golden State Killer case where um, law enforcement used publicly available databases. And there's been some law enforcement uses where they've actually requested information from um, direct-to-consumer companies. And in response, a lot of those companies made their uh, user agreements more protective um, in the sense that they said, we're not going to give this law enforcement unless we're subpoenaed or something like that. And so from that perspective, I think that that was all reputational, that they have an interest in getting customers and customers, you know, generally have an interest in at least some privacy. Well, but when you look at something like 23andMe, it's interesting because the <laughs> it's like the the tail now wags the dog, right? So they came in as a company offering genetic testing and built up this database. The database is now much more valuable than the testing business. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm no economist, but I believe that to be true. Uh, I, I, I think that the money they've made off the database is is what's the real money that that gives value to that. I don't know, it's valued very high recently. Mm-hmm. Billion dollar company. So Theoretically, could they decide that they didn't really care anymore about how customers like, you know, they started off saying we're a community, we're a community, we're going to go live forever all together, solve all cancer, solve all Parkinson's. And it's so great. And then they could turn around theoretically and say, no, we don't need any more database. And we have this very valuable collection of data. And now just kidding. We are going to share it. Is that theoretical? I'm not saying they would. So I actually really don't think that they would. But is it theoretically possible? There's there's no nothing that stops them. Um, yeah, I will give my lawyerly answer because, you know, I'm a lawyer. So I would say I think it's theoretically possible with a little asterisk of there could be state laws or other type of laws that that prevent them. But just in terms of like the user agreement, my understanding is you can switch the user agreement. 
Um, one thing that's interesting about the state law um, is there has been there have been a number of bills that have been passing in states that are regulating direct to consumer companies and their data practices. And so I, I don't know those laws well enough to know whether it would address the question that you're asking right now. Um, but one, one um, there are sort of copycat bills and one part of the bill that has been included is that the DTC companies can't sell any of the information to insurers, to life insurers and long-term care. Um, so there, there is some state movement to regulate data practices of DTC companies. Mm -hmm. So state movement, which means that just what we discussed a minute ago would also be true. The, the company could relocate itself, which happens, as I understand it, in the ether anyway, right? As, so the company could mentally relocate itself to the state of Idaho, which has no... I don't mean to pick on you, Idaho. I have no idea what your laws are. <laughs> thinking of you as a place that doesn't enact a lot of laws. Yeah, there I think it would depend on how the law is written of whether it, it covers like samples from the individuals in that state versus mm -hmm. yeah. the company. And I just don't know how, how they're written for that. <laughs> so let, let, let me get back to more, to, to more comfortable ground. Um, another interesting area, um, which is quite a bit different from the things we've been discussing so far, has to do with people's access to their medical records in clinical settings. There's also some interesting sort of legal developments there. Um, so people must be given access, right? As of, what was it, 2012, 13? Yeah, something, something like that. Something like that. It was in Obama's second term. Um, so after 2012, there was a law passed saying people have to have access to their medical records if they ask for it. And again, this is something we've had conversations about before because um, I wonder if you're doing sequence-based testing, this is enormous amounts of information um, and sort of uncurated information. We have long conversations in the field of genetics about how much we should safely give out, you know, like, do we, do we give back this information and under what conditions do we give back this information? Because we want to make sure that people understand what it means and all that stuff. But that law kind of feels like it takes it out of our hands. Is that right? Yeah. And um, I'll add one update to that. So regulations just recently came out um, where there's rules around what's called information blocking. So now in, in um, clinical and, and maybe in some research settings, um, if you have any report, right, this isn't just genetics, but all of medical, if you have some report or some data, you have to immediately release it to the patient. And so this is a, a really, um, I think, interesting thing in a genetic setting because, you know, you have, you know, you're a clinic and you use an outside testing company to get some data. Well, then the, the patient might immediately have that genetic testing information before they show up to a genetic counseling visit to actually contextualize that information, which you can think of all sorts of settings. You know, I think prenatal is one where that, that can be really difficult to get that information because, and especially when this is paired with greater movement to have, um, uh, patient engagement with their medical records. So if you, you know, in, in my 
company we use my chart i'm sure there's other companies out there but um i get emails all the time about things that are in my medical records and and so that law that gives me access now i think the big difference is you know the question you asked is is can we sort of stop patients to, to get access to this but at least in the previous version the patients had to say you know what i want this detailed information and i'm going to ask you for that detailed information and now i think we're moving towards we don't care if the patient wants that or not and it's if it goes in their medical records they're going to get some alert um, and then they just open up a email on a Tuesday afternoon and think, oh my gosh, what the heck is happening? But but Anya, so in in digging down into what you're saying, you you, you said initially, if there is some report, if there are some data, but but for me, that's the dividing line. Those aren't sort of synonyms, right? So the report is somebody's taken a look at the data and said, I'm pulling out for you significant information, mm-hmm. these data. Uh, I'm I'm curating this to give you an idea of what's significant. Um, yes, it could force us to reevaluate ideas like right not to know, because we'd have to tell somebody if you're doing this test, it's going to be right up there in your face, everything. You're not going to have sort of that right not to know, uh, which is interesting. Um, and the only way to preserve it would then to be to tell the lab not to test what they don't want to know. I don't know if it's even possible if you're doing non-targeted testing like sequencing often is. The data is everything, right? Mm-hmm. Where and, and 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 that's what I've been unable to get a real clear answer on, which is does what the uh, patient or individual in the clinical setting get back every ACTG or a report where and in which case like someone's gonna have to clarify what goes in the report. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know that in some instances, patients have gotten their, you know, full ACTGs and then they upload it to sites that, you know, supposedly curate all of the, the predispositions. Services, which are blossoming. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's where um, it comes in. But at least to me there, it it is the um, you know, there's a lot. It's, it, it's the savvy person who know who says, I want this full information and I'm going to seek it out. And we do have a lot of data on like, um, you know, psychosocial um, or um, psychological uh, reactions to genetic information. And we used to be really worried about, you know, anxiety and all that. And a lot of the empirical studies show that those, you know, to the extent that there's any increased anxiety and worry that dissipates over time. And so I worry a little bit less about just personally, right, about that person who says, yeah, I want this information. I'm information seeking, um, as opposed to somebody who gets a report and and doesn't have somebody there to help them contextualize um, immediately. But but I, I think that's up for debate for sure. Yeah. So in general, this is quasi my last question might ask you something else. Um, But in general, where do you see privacy protections going? Do you think that the next 10 years we're going to have a spate of new genetic privacy laws? I think, um, I hope, I hope that we have new privacy laws. I I will say that. And I think 
I wouldn't stop it at, pri- at genetic privacy. I think more and more the concern out there is just data in general, because you take all sorts of phenotypic data, um, you know, social <laughs> social information, um, everything about a person, you can find so much, and then you add genetic data on top of that, and you can really paint um, an amazingly robust picture about a person. And we have genetic studies um, and all sorts of health studies and even social science studies that are trying to merge all of that data together, some of them in really powerful ways, um, but really individuals can't control that very much anymore. Uh, and so um, so I think there needs to be just broader privacy rules in general and genetics could be part of that. Um, and I think one thing that comes with all that big data is when something can proxy for information. So I think you have to have the the privacy laws for just other data as well, or we really don't have any privacy. So just one quick example, I can be protected, um, you know, if I had a BRCA um, uh, predisposition. Um, I could be protected all I wanted in the genetic space. Let's say we have all sorts of life insurance protections and all of that for my genetic information. And then I join a social media group, um, you know, a private Facebook or meta group, whatever, um, that is for people with BRCA variant, uh, uh, predisposition. And if they can use that information, hey. well then... And we've given up the ghost on any genetic protection. Everyone asks me if I'm really worried about gen- my genetic privacy. I would say, well, you know, I wouldn't want someone to have access to my genetic information. But if I had to choose, I'd much prefer it to them having access to my Google search history. It, that That is, it still feels like the more powerful source of information. And yeah. as you say, and we also say this is sort of like you can try and be, when people tried to use direct-to-consumer to get genetic testing results and especially early on there was talk about how you know that they could control it and keep it private but of course you can't use it without getting it into the medical record like you 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 it's not useful until you can go to the doctor and say i need to do i don't know um and I, I need to do uh, mammograms more frequently because i have this risk at which point it becomes a part of the medical record so you, you similarly, you can't use it without at least using Google, right? So if, if that's giving everything about you away, then you, you're already lost that privacy. Yeah. A final, final difficult question, um, philosophically. So one of the problems with regulating DNA is we're not quite sure what it is, right? Like, Sometimes it's physical property, sometimes it's intellectual property, sometimes it's neither. So, professor, full professor, <laughs> Anya Prin, new news. Um, can you give me some idea of what you think DNA is on a legal standpoint? Yeah, um, I think from a from a legal standpoint, it is different in every single law. And so we can't talk about it there. What I think it should be is both the material 
and the information that can be derived from it. And that is, I think, the piece that is sometimes missing from how we think about it in the law. Um, and the other way I think we need to conceptualize it differently is it's not necessarily always medical. That um, a lot of times the law treats genetic information as a predisposition to disease. And we are now doing more and more tests that broaden that scope and the legal protections might not have as big of a scope. And so, um, you know, I don't necessarily, I think that the property, thinking of genetics as property makes more sense if you're thinking about my tissue or my, you know, my physical body. Um, but that's not where many people's concerns are. There's not too many people who are going to be the Henrietta Lacks's or the Moors of um, the world. There are more people who are going to just care about what happens to their information. And so we have to conceptualize it, I think, as privacy and as the information that stems from that material. That's uh, a great answer. Thank you. It's very interesting when you start to think about it, how complicated it actually is. We can't even pin down like what it actually amounts to. It gets a sense of the complications of trying to regulate it. Yeah. Uh, so this has been fun, Anya Prince. So nice to see you. Uh, you too. I, I can see her. Sorry. I can see her. <laughs> so nice to hear you. <laughs> and thank you for visiting with me. Thank you for visiting with us. Thank you all out there for listening. And everybody, uh, stay safe and well. Bye. Bye. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is in vitae.